Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Before we get started, just a public service announcement that today's sponsor is Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. You can listen to their audiobooks whenever and whenever you want and get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at www.audiobooksblackhistory.com. That's www.audiobooksblackhistory.com. Okay, this is William Lauren Katz, and I would like to introduce my book, Breaking the Chains. It's a story of slavery and slave resistance in the United States. And uh, one of the things, which I'll come back to in a moment, is that it's highly illustrated with many uh, photographs and line drawings and engravings of the time that I collected so that they could be used to not only tell the story but to show the story. And I'll come back to that in a moment. The book has a number of chapters, 13 in all. It starts from Africa and the first rebellions that took place against the slave catchers in Africa, takes one on the high seas, a trip across the Atlantic, in which there were a hundred or more slave rebellions in some uh, instances, the Africans taking control of the ships and even getting back to Africa. And then it goes on to what happened here in the Americas, where uh, slaves were considered from the beginning a troublesome property, which meant nobody adopts to slavery, nobody likes it, and everybody who has a chance revolts. And every people who has ever been enslaved, whether it was the ancient Hebrews or people of modern times, find a way to resist, escape, and it talks then on the chapter that you're going to be hearing on the battle for family and knowledge and our families kept their structure together as best they could they fought to educate themselves and to use this knowledge to develop resistance and then the book goes on into the way plantation life was disrupted how there was resistance in both in the industrial part of the south and the urban part of the south different kind of resistance than on the plantations. And then there's a chapter on, it's called Music for Jesus, Lyrics for Freedom, on how enslaved people, everybody thought they were entirely ignorant, turned their religion, and particularly the music that accompanied their religious services, into laments for freedom, desires for freedom, and even plans for freedom. And the book goes on to discuss runaways and maroons, these colonies that formed when Native Americans and African Americans 
joined together to make a life for themselves that was to be their American dream and to fight off those who would stop them. It goes on to talk about the revolts in the age of the American Revolution and then some important 19th century slave rebels and the fiery abolitionists in which white people and black people in the North largely joined together to fight the system. And the last three chapters are on the Civil War and how the Civil War was a massive uprising of African Americans for freedom, and hundreds of thousands joined the Union Army and Navy and actually brought Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation to reality. Slaves escaped, uh, black men in uniform liberated Charleston and other cities, and so on. And that's how the book goes on. Now, on Chapter 3, I would just like to add something the listener won't get at when uh, you hear the the reading, and that's the, the pictures. One of the pictures in shows uh, early on is a photograph in uh, 1909 showing a black marriage ceremony which marked the end of slavery because some couples had been married for years, for decades, but they rushed off once they were free since they could not be legally married when they were enslaved and had their marriage solemnized and written into law. And another is a a rare um, picture I found in a Harper's Weekly of an African-American community in Tennessee in which you can see of the women uh, set up an orphan asylum to care for children. Slavery also provided as picture shows scant protection for women and children as a man looks in as a woman tries to protect her children. Anyway, these are just some of the pictures in Chapter 3, and I hope you enjoy the reading. The book is Breaking the Chains, African-American Slave Resistance. And this is William Lauren Katz. Thank you. Good evening and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Before we get started, just a public service announcement that today's sponsor is Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. You can listen to their audio books whenever and whenever you want and get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at www.audiobooksblackhistory.com. Recorded Books Incorporated presents an unabridged recording of Breaking the Chains, African-American Slave Resistance by William Lauren Katz Narrated by Peter Francis James Chapter 8 Revolts in the Age of Revolution Centuries before the Minutemen bravely stood at Concord Bridge African slave rebels struck for freedom. 
They introduced the idea of revolution to the British colonies long before white men wrote an eloquent declaration of independence. From the beginning, slave rebelliousness was a hallmark of life in colonial North America. We are determined to shake off our bondage, and for that purpose we stand on a good foundation. Many have joined, said a black Charleston rebel. Africans had been wrenched from societies that cherished liberty, practiced justice, and treasured the young and the elderly. Though untrained, unarmed, and vastly outnumbered by the armed society around them, they repeatedly attempted insurrection. In the earliest slave rebellions, blacks often united with Indians. In 1526, the two races joined in a North Carolina coastal revolt that sent the surviving European colonists packing for home. When Native Americans besieged Jamestown in 1622, whites died, but Africans were spared. In 1657, Africans and Indians invaded Hartford, Connecticut. In 1727, the two peoples threatened Virginia settlements. During Pontiac's uprising in 1763, a white Detroit resident complained, the Indians are saving and caressing all the Negroes they take. To prevent solidification of a force that could spell their doom, British officials heated up ancient rivalries and ignited new ones. In 1758, South Carolina Governor James Glenn proclaimed, It has always been the policy of this government to create an aversion in them, Indians, to Negroes. Divide and rule became British colonial policy. Africans were armed to fight Indians, and Indians bribed to hunt runaways. For recapturing runaways, Indians received 35 deerskins in Virginia and three blankets and a musket in the Carolinas. Local Indian nations often refused to hunt people they had befriended, so Europeans recruited other nations living at a distance. The 18th century, which ended with the American and French revolutions, first gave birth to slave uprisings from New York to Georgia. In 1712, New York slaves rose to kill and wound more than a dozen whites. Then rebellions flared in Virginia and the Carolinas. Soon, fearful South Carolina whites, outnumbered by their slaves, armed when leaving for church. In 1739, three uprisings rocked the colony. The largest was at Stono River, where rebels seized a warehouse full of guns and ammunition. An eyewitness described their advance. Being thus provided with arms, they elected one of their number captain and agreed to follow him, marching toward the southwest, with colors flying and drums beating, like a disciplined company. About thirty whites died. Troops surrounded and massacred the African-American rebels. New York City, in 1740, faced another insurrection, and the following year another one. In 1741, authorities executed 31 African rebels and four whites who helped them. In Georgia, in 1770, where slavery had been installed only a generation before, there was a major insurrection. 
1775, as tension between English rulers and colonists mounted, a slave outbreak shook North Carolina. These rebellious slaves prepared the colonists to challenge British tyranny. Before they rose against King George III, often white American patriots were trained in slave-fighting armies, battling against people striking for liberty. In reaching for arguments to justify their thirst for independence from England, the Founding Fathers claimed, all men are created equal and have a right to freedom. They justified revolution against unjust or tyrannical authority. Some carried the issue of liberty further. James Otis, Benjamin Franklin, and Tom Paine denounced slavery. In 1774, Abigail Adams, writing to her famous husband John about a slave plot, said, It always appeared a most iniquitous scheme to me to fight ourselves for what we are daily robbing and plundering from those who have as good a right to freedom as we have. In his first draft of the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson denounced King George III for promoting the African slave trade, but Jefferson's criticism was eliminated after pressure from slave-holding delegates to the Continental Congress. As American revolutionists marched forth against British rule, northern colonies abandoned slavery. Some patriots, such as Benjamin Franklin and Alexander Hamilton, began anti-slavery societies because ending bondage seemed a normal step in building a republican society. But the white South, with hundreds of thousands of slaves, increased nightly patrols. South Carolina announced a bounty of a healthy slave for any white who enlisted as a soldier in the Continental Army or Navy. The American right of revolution fired black imaginations as much as it did white. In 1765, the Sons of Liberty paraded in Charleston chanting, Liberty. A few months later, African Americans took to the same streets, shouting for independence. Whites rushed for their muskets, remained under arms for a week, and sent out patrols day and night. In Virginia, in 1767, slaves were executed for poisoning overseers. In 1774, African Americans rose in Georgia and killed seven whites. The month before Minutemen faced British muskets at Lexington and Concord, slaves in Ulster County, New York, organized an uprising that also involved 500 Indians. By summer 1775, patriots found armed slaves a menace from Maryland to Georgia. Hundreds, perhaps thousands, struck in three North Carolina counties, but were crushed by overwhelming white firepower. On July 4, 1776, John Hancock's bold scrawl reached across the Declaration of Independence. The next day, a letter from Somerset, New Jersey, informed him slaves were arming and attempting to form themselves for their liberty. In the first two years of the American Revolution, slave unrest erupted behind Patriot lines from New York to Louisiana. The British tried to seize on slave unrest to draw off black laborers and arm them against the Patriots. On November 7, 1775, Royal Governor Lord Dunsmore's proclamation offered liberty and a musket to any slave who fled to his lines. 
The flame runs like wildfire through the slaves, a white woman wrote in early December. Soon, thousands of African Americans crowded into British camps. Thomas Jefferson estimated 30,000 escaped in 1778. In the Revolution, about 100,000 slaves fled their masters. By January 1776, General Washington, who had refused black volunteers, reversed his policy. Some 5,000 African Americans, slaves and free blacks, served in the Continental Army and Navy. Their service was generally much longer than white volunteers, and their record of bravery earned battlefield commendations and awards of freedom. Most African Americans fought in integrated units, and a few northern states, such as Rhode Island, fielded all black regiments under white officers. Like the blacks who wore British redcoats, what these patriots sought was liberty. Many African American veterans on both sides found it. This first war against colonialism and for liberty inspired people the world over, and none more passionately than African Americans. Beginning in 1773, blacks, particularly in Massachusetts, adopted the revolution's slogans to agitate for their liberty. One black petition reminded officials that Africans are a free-born people and have never forfeited this blessing and have in common with all other men a natural right to our freedoms. Another cited the Declaration of Independence's unalienable right to liberty. In 1780, African-American petitions protested against taxation without representation. Americans hoped their victory would trigger waves of democratic revolution, topple kings, and establish just governments in the world. Wrote Thomas Jefferson, We are pointing out the way to struggling nations who wish, like us, to emerge from their tyrannies also. Friends of republicanism cheered when the people of Paris liberated the Bastille prison, executed their king, and began to build their own democratic government. Even as the French wrote their Declaration of the Rights of Man, the new democratic spirit spawned a revolution across the Atlantic in one of France's Caribbean colonies. San Domingo's sugar made it the richest colony in the world. France ruled this island of half a million enslaved Africans, four-fifths of the population, who labored under brutal masters and back-breaking conditions. Today, this island is called Hispaniola, and it contains the nations of Haiti and Santo Domingo. Almost half of the colony's free people were a mixture of white and black and were denied citizenship rights by the French. The French king's divide-and-rule policy kept the mixed population from siding with the slaves, but France's democratic revolution stirred both classes. First, the mixed population revolted against French discrimination, then the slaves. In 1791, massive slave revolts in San Domingo transformed the struggle among free people over their rights into a black revolution to overthrow slavery. By the next year, slavery had ended. Toussaint Louverture, 50, a short, brilliant slave coachman, became the revolution's charismatic military and political figure. 
he kept his island loyal to France and made strategic alliances with foreign powers. His armies drove armed Spanish and British invasions into the sea. Louverture never wavered in his pledge to end bondage. In 1797, he told the Directory, the five men who ruled France, of his people's determination. We have known how to face dangers to obtain our liberty. We shall know how to brave death to maintain it. The United States traded with Louverture, but did not recognize his government. When some slaveholders demanded his overthrow, a Pennsylvania legislator reminded his fellow citizens of a U.S. insurrection that secured independence. For anti-slavery Americans, the successful revolt in San Domingo was seen as proof that U.S. slavery was doomed. The rebellion bloodied the country, as every side carried out fearful atrocities. In the United States, some whites warned that black suffering under bondage could also lead to widespread bloodshed. Slaveholders, on the other hand, blamed San Domingo's African rebels for the continuing violence. It proved, they insisted, blacks needed European masters with a whip hand. When Napoleon seized power in France, Louverture sent him a dispatch that included his 1801 constitution, which ended slavery and abolished government racial discrimination. An infuriated Napoleon wrote that the constitution rejected the dignity and sovereignty of France in favor of independence. Why should this not be so, answered Louverture. The United States did exactly that, and with the assistance of monarchical France, succeeded. The black ruler rejected Napoleon's threats and bribes, and the hope you entertain that I might be induced to betray the cause. Fresh from dazzling military victories in Italy, Napoleon decided to restore French power and slavery in San Domingo. He dispatched huge armies under the command of his brother-in-law, Leclerc. Though the French failed to defeat the revolution, Leclerc tricked Louverture into a meeting aboard a French ship and seized him as a prisoner. Louverture stood on the deck and predicted, In overthrowing me, you have cut down in San Domingo only the trunk of the Tree of Liberty. It will spring up again by the roots, for they are numerous and deep. The Louverture died in a cell in the Alps. His assistants, Jean-Jacques Dessalines and Henri Christophe, fought on. Christophe had served in the American Revolution and been wounded in the Battle of Savannah in 1779. He was one of more than 700 blacks the French had recruited when they had helped the U.S. patriots. Dessalines and Christophe continued the war until the French surrendered in November 1803. On New Year's Day, 1804, on the very spot Louverture was captured by the French, a declaration of independence for the new Republic of Haiti was announced. This proud Indian name identified the second republic of the New World. For the first and only time in history, slaves had liberated an entire country. Napoleon's armies were soon defeated in Europe, but Haiti was the first to explode his global ambitions. Napoleon had hoped 
to build an empire in the New World by dispatching huge armies from bases in San Domingo and the Louisiana Territory. The slave rebels of Haiti changed his plans. Their revolt taught him how difficult it was to hold colonies across the Atlantic Ocean. When U.S. diplomats arrived to purchase New Orleans from France, Napoleon made a new suggestion. For four cents an acre, he sold the entire Louisiana Territory to the United States. The successful rebellion in San Domingo reached into U.S. homes. At first, it was celebrated as another victory for American revolutionary principles. But slaveholders soon convinced many whites it posed a threat to American security. The triumph of democracy was fine, they said, but only for people with fair complexions and European culture and manners. Some masters claimed their slaves became more menacing as news of Haiti spread to southern plantations. Slaveholders feared their laborers would be contaminated by seeds of revolution from the West Indies. Thomas Jefferson was convinced that sparks from Haiti had the power to set the Southland afire. In 1782, southern states began to ban black refugees from Caribbean islands. South Carolina denied entrance to blacks from the West Indies, South America, or any French-ruled island. In 1803, the U.S. House of Representatives voted unanimously that refugees from San Domingo posed a danger to the peace and safety of the United States. A victorious, independent Haiti confirmed the worst fears of U.S. slaveholders. If armed slaves had defeated mighty Napoleon's armies in battle, what might be their fate? Until U.S. slavery ended, worried Southern whites kept asking this question. A growing number of whites who opposed slavery hoped Haiti would serve as an example to U.S. slaveholders. African Americans in Haiti, though they had been kept in ignorance, had been capable of defeating their owners. They saw and avenged their wrongs, learned and asserted their rights, and finally took power from foreigners to rule their own destiny. Some whites used this lesson of San Domingo to urge their countrymen to abolish slavery before it was too late. But others insisted that only an overwhelming black majority produced success in Haiti. San Domingo had an 80% slave population, towering over a small, bitterly divided free population. In addition, the European colonial powers in the region were at war. In British Guyana and Jamaica, where slave insurrections also achieved success, blacks outnumbered whites by nine to one. These conditions did not exist in the southern states of the U.S., where African Americans formed a bare majority in only Mississippi and South Carolina, 55% to 57%. These figures fell to 47% in Louisiana, 45% in Alabama, 44% in Georgia, 31% in Virginia, 25% in Tennessee, and only 20% in Kentucky. Unarmed people needed overwhelming numbers to defeat trained armies. In the decades after the American Revolution, the U.S. ruling class accepted the slaveholders' command that the new national government must defend their human property.
it was written into the new constitution and laws of the land. At home, masters who loved their own freedom strengthened the vast control machinery that prevented slaves from achieving liberty. As people settled on the frontier, the remote, inaccessible havens where rebel armies could organize began to vanish. Revolts were much harder to launch, and freedom more difficult to reach. The African-American community drew its own conclusions from San Domingo's success. Haiti taught that thrusts for freedom did not always end in military defeat and painful death. Slave resistance had become global. L'Ouverture, Dessalines, and Christophe became inspiring role models. In slave cabins, at night, parents told children warming tales of a land not far away in the Americas, where black freedom fighters defeated powerful European tyrants and lived to rule the day. Chapter 9 19th Century Slave Rebels The American, French, and Haitian revolutions delivered messages about freedom that neither slaves nor masters could ignore. But as 19th century slaves took heart and drew strength from victories over European rulers and bondage, U.S. slaveholders tightened control over their slaves. One white Southern response was to close off blacks from all information about resistance. Beginning with the American Revolution, and perhaps before, news of uprisings rarely appeared in print. In 1774, James Madison wrote of one revolt, It is prudent that such attempts should be concealed as well as suppressed. In 1800, Virginia Governor James Monroe asked the legislature to bury news about that year's massive conspiracy that threatened Richmond. He hoped it would even pass unnoticed. In 1808, Governor John Tyler advised against discussing revolts, even at a closed session of the Virginia legislature. He feared it would probably increase the spirit of insurrection among the slaves. Governor Tyler was admitting that slaves could penetrate a secret session of the state legislature. Even traditional salutes to U.S. independence, some feared, became ammunition for slave rebels. The celebration of the 4th of July belongs exclusively to the white population, wrote a white Charlestonian. Keep blacks from Independence Day ceremonies lest they imbibe false notions. But the spirit of Toussaint Louverture lived on in the slave quarters. In 1800, a U.S. Gazette reporter in Virginia wrote whites momentarily expected a rising among the Negroes God only knows our fate. In 1822, a Charleston woman wrote a friend, Last evening, 2,500 of our citizens were under arms to guard our property and lives. But it is a subject not to be mentioned, and unless you hear of it elsewhere, say nothing about it. These described two carefully directed plans by slaves to capture southern cities, Richmond, in 1800, and Charleston in 1822. While visiting the South, British reporter William H. Russell read several dreadful accounts of murder and violence 
where slaves rose against their owners. After interviewing planters and their wives, Russell concluded, There is something suspicious in the constant, never-ending statement that we are not afraid of our slaves. Though owners like to boast, our servants are perfectly happy. Privately, many admitted, we are living on a volcano. Whites knew what their reactions would be if white families were forced into slavery. Thoughts of bloody black retribution were never far from their minds. Panicky imaginations heard impending bloodshed in chance remarks, silly rumors, minor brawls, mysterious fires, and unsolved deaths. Almost any challenge to white authority, even by a few, could be seen as a burning fuse leading to the slave quarter. Investigations ruled by the terror-stricken sent whites running for their guns, whips, and horses. Savage bloodletting was the easiest response to actual threats and imagined ones. Many times in the 19th century, slaves tried to slash their way to freedom, but the lives they took never matched the barbarity and massive murders of the white reprisals that followed in their wake. Separating black uprisings from white hysteria was difficult in the early 19th century and poses problems today. Since rebellion was a subject not to be mentioned, evidence was buried. No black rebel survived to publish his or her story. Most died quickly at the hands of state authorities or posses in the field. Rebel confessions were extracted by white officials and provide an incomplete picture of events. Much of what happened in each plot remains unclear, except there were numerous rebellions, many more conspiracies, and they were invariably crushed with unstinting brutality. By the 19th century, slaveholder power rested on thousands of well-trained troops and command of communication and transportation. Slaves began with a few weapons, no military training, and perhaps a hope of seizing an enemy arsenal. They had no experience with guns, no way to practice being an army, and few places to hide once the militia appeared. Slave Solomon Northup wrote, Without arms or ammunition, or even with them, I saw such a step would result in certain defeat, disaster, and death and always raised my voice against it. Rebels had few good choices. If they involved too few, they could quickly be isolated and overwhelmed. If a leader expanded his conspiracy to hundreds or thousands, he risked betrayal by its weakest links. Many schemes were revealed by informers whom whites richly rewarded for their cooperation. To avoid inevitable exposure, some leaders planned surprise attacks that would seize weapons and recruit volunteers on the way. This idea rested on a shaky faith. Slaves on the rebels' line of march would be asked to risk their lives for those they hardly knew, who suddenly appeared with a plan nobody had time to explain fully. Even if some joined the ranks, could this spontaneous, unarmed rabble stand up against the trained military units whites were bound to summon. Despite the dangers, time and again those in chains attempted insurrection. 
Their decision often came as a last desperate stab for freedom and at a system that held their lives and families in contempt. Four major slave rebellions shook the South during the first half of the 19th century. For African-American communities, the leaders became legends in the tradition of Toussaint Louverture and Henri Christophe. Whites shuddered at the names. In 1800, in Henrico County, Virginia, Gabriel Prosser, 24, 6 foot 2, with no record of resistance, plotted for months to capture Richmond. A blacksmith, taught to read by his master's wife, Prosser was a devoted student of the Old Testament. Samson was his hero. With his wife, Nanny, and his brothers, Solomon and Martin, on the night of August 30th, 1800, Prosser assembled on his master's estate a force estimated at more than 900. Some carried scythes and clubs, others bayonets, and a few had guns. Prosser and his officers, knowing of L'Ouverture's alliance with France, planned to spare Frenchmen and Quakers, and to recruit Catawba Indians and poor whites. His strategy was to divide his forces into three columns under previously selected officers, capture Richmond's armory, and subdue the city. Believing 50,000 blacks and friends of humanity would join him, he foresaw a victory as great as the one in Haiti. A sudden storm brought floods that poured over the six miles of roads to Richmond. The conspirators were drenched, isolated from their target, and disheartened. Convinced heaven had spoken, they went home to wait for a better omen. The conspiracy began to unravel. Prosser and his officers were betrayed, captured, and sentenced to death. One bravely told his captors he had done for African Americans what Washington had done for Americans. I have ventured my life to obtain the liberty of my countrymen. Though federal intervention was unneeded, Governor James Monroe requested and received permission to use the federal armory at Manchester. Thus, a federal government made its first commitment to crush slave revolts. The governor's investigation claimed the Prosser plot embraced most of the slaves in and near the city, and perhaps the whole state. Governor Monroe had served in the Revolutionary Army and studied law with Thomas Jefferson. Now this former revolutionary came to interview the present one. The governor left no record of the exchange. Prosser seems to have made up his mind to die in silence, he wrote. Monroe later added, Unhappily, while this class of people exists among us, we can never count with certainty on its tranquil submission. Gabriel Prosser and thirty to forty followers were hanged at the Richmond jail. But even as they died, some whites spoke of their true spirit of heroism and utmost composure. This led to an open debate in Virginia on continuing slavery. Slaveholder John Randolph said, The accused have exhibited a spirit which, if it becomes general, must deluge the southern country in blood. They manifested a sense of their rights and a contempt of danger and a thirst for revenge which portend the most unhappy consequences. 
Governor Monroe believed the danger to the public posed by slave unrest is daily increasing. He corresponded with his friend, President Thomas Jefferson, about placing free black people on frontier land. In a series of secret sessions, the Virginia legislature debated ending slavery, but put off a decision. Grave warnings came from other Southerners. George Tucker wrote a popular pamphlet stating that the love of freedom is an inborn sentiment given by God to all humans from philosophers to slaves. At the first favorable moment, it springs forth and flourishes with a vigor that defies all check. Tucker wanted to free all slaves, but whites would not sacrifice so rich a treasure. The controversy provoked by Prosser's revolt reached beyond Virginia. Mississippi governor, Winthrop Sargent, warned his people to expect uprisings. By 1802, northern states, except New Jersey, had ended bondage. Maryland, Tennessee, and Kentucky soon made manumission, or the granting of liberty to slaves, easier. Legislatures in Maryland and Kentucky discussed gradual emancipation, but no southern state seriously considered abolishing slavery. In June 1802, a Norfolk paper published a slave woman's letter with her original spelling. White people beware of your lives. There's a plan now forming and intended to be put in execution this harvest time. They are to commence and use their scythes as weapons until they can get possession of other weapons. There is a great many weapons hid for the purpose, and be you assured... If you do not look out in time, that many of you will be put to death. By October, 20 African-American rebels were in jail. In 1808, the U.S. Congress, fearful of violence from newly enslaved Africans, banned the slave trade. A new round of slave outbreaks came during the conflict between the United States and England that became the War of 1812. In January 1811, an African-American who signed himself as J.B. wrote a letter to General T.R. that was discovered in Richmond. It confirmed white fears. J.B. wrote of 80 armed rebels and urged secrecy till that fateful night. In St. John the Baptist Parish, 36 miles from New Orleans that same year, what was probably the largest U.S. slave rebellion erupted. Some 500 blacks marched toward the city from the Andrea State. They destroyed five plantations and picked up recruits along the way. Orderly companies under officers carried flags, and men walked to the beat of drums. Louisiana's governor summoned federal troops. General Wade Hampton's 600 militiamen surrounded the rebels executed 68, and ended the revolution. During the War of 1812, slaves fled to whomever promised freedom. A U.S. officer reported, Our Negroes are flocking to the enemy from all quarters, whom they convert into troops, vindictive and rapacious. With the most minute knowledge of every bypath, they return upon us as guides. 
John Randolph urged his fellow Virginians to worry less about British troops and more about our safety at home. In 1816, George Boxley, a white Virginia store owner, popular among African Americans, led a slave revolt. Believing the distinction between rich and poor was too great, he recruited white assistants in Fredericksburg and Richmond. When his plan was betrayed, Boxley managed to escape, but six black rebels were executed. In 1822, Denmark Vesey, a Charleston carpenter, conspired to seize the city. Vesey was a slave until he won a lottery in 1800 and used the winnings to purchase his freedom. He found, though, he was not allowed to buy his family's freedom. A leading member of the Hampstead African Methodist Church, Vesey had also traveled widely in the Caribbean and read everything he could find about slavery and Haiti. Louverture's success and the biblical tale of the Hebrews' rescue excited Vesey and his co-plotters. In 1821, when Whites closed his Hampstead Church, Vesey felt it was. High time for us to seek for our rights. If we are only unanimous and courageous, as the San Domingo people were, Vesey said, we were fully able to conquer the whites. Vesey calculated that a bold strike in Charleston would send eager blacks from nearby plantations rushing to him. Slave masters would flee, and their empire would collapse. The plotters discussed fleeing to Africa or the Caribbean if their plan failed, but specific transportation was not arranged. By May, Beasy recruited an estimated six to nine thousand. Now the plot became vulnerable to informers, and by early June, whites had penetrated it. On June 22nd, Beasy and other leaders were arrested by state authorities. Governor Thomas Bennett quickly requested federal aid. Secretary of War Calhoun, a South Carolina slaveholder, dispatched federal artillery troops from St. Augustine to South Carolina. He did not inform the president, though only the president of the United States has the constitutional power to send federal troops into states. Conspirators were dealt with quickly. Of Vesey's band, 35 were hanged, 42 exiled. And four whites were convicted of aiding the conspiracy. On the gallows, the doomed shouted out to keep revolt alive. Federal troops stood by to quell any rescue effort by the African American community. The last major slave revolt, organized by Nat Turner in 1831, shook the foundations of slavery in Southampton, Virginia, and throughout the South. Turner, at 30. Was a slave whom whites had always considered a quiet, contented man. Then one night, he had a vision that his duty was to end bondage. Deeply religious, and a country lay preacher on Sundays, Turner was respected far and wide for his piety and leadership. Turner set about his new task, picking early morning as the time of revolution. On August twenty-second. With sixty to eighty men, most on horseback, Turner led his forces toward the county seat of Jerusalem and its store of arms and ammunition. In the next forty hours, Turner and his men spared a poor white family, but slew 
57 to 65 white masters and their families. Federal troops from Fort Monroe, the Navy ships Warren and Natchez near Norfolk, and the Hampton with three artillery companies were rushed to Southampton. U.S. Marine guards and sailors from the Warren and Natchez marched through the county to announce a federal presence and terrify any African Americans thinking of joining Turner's rebellion. A vast roundup began, but Turner escaped capture by hiding in the woods. He finally walked out and surrendered. Sentenced to death, Nat Turner reminded his captors that Christ had been crucified and calmly went to the gallows. The revolt's slayings were soon surpassed by those of white vigilantes. With torch and rifle, fanatical men swooped down on black communities throughout the countryside. An estimated 200 men, women, and children were slain, most with no connection to the rebellion. Reprisals reached counties besides Southampton and states beyond Virginia. The best and the brightest was killed in Nat's time, recalled Charity Bowery, a slave in Edenton, North Carolina. African Americans celebrated Old Prophet Nat by singing, You can't keep the world from turning round, or Nat Turner from gaining ground. For whites, Turner was their worst nightmare in flesh and blood. One slaveholder admitted, I have not slept without anxiety in three months. Our nights are sometimes spent in listening to noises. Nat Turner died on the gallows, but his ghostly spirit hovered above every southerner. Slaveholder James McDowell told the Virginia legislature the uprising raised the suspicion that a Nat Turner might be in every family, that the same bloody deeds might be acted over at any time in any place that the material for it was spread throughout the land and always ready for a like explosion. Mrs. Lawrence Lewis, niece of George Washington, wrote about a smothered volcano. We know not when or where the flame will burst forth, but we know that death in the most horrid forms threatens us. Some have died. Others have become deranged. Southern legislatures voted their fears. Since Turner read and preached, laws were passed against black preachers and banning the teaching of slaves. To see you with a book in your hand, they would almost cut your throat, recalled one slave. Laws were passed in many southern states that made manumission of slaves almost impossible. One Virginia legislator spoke of his goal for slaves. We have, as far as possible, closed every avenue by which light might enter their minds. If you could extinguish the capacity to see the light, our work would be completed. They would then be on a level with the beasts of the field, and we should be safe. The massacres carried out in the wake of Turner's revolt were designed to terrorize black communities. However, two mutinies on the slave-trading ships showed even terror had its limitations. In 1839, Joseph Chinque, son of an African king, led 54 Africans being transported to the New World in a revolt aboard the Amistad. 
The Africans tried to steer back to their homeland, but treacherous white crewmen guided the ship toward the Connecticut coast. Interned at first, Chinque and his men were finally freed by the U.S. Supreme Court. Former President John Quincy Adams served as their volunteer lawyer. In 1841, Madison Washington led a mutiny of 19 on the Creole, sailing from Hampton Roads, Virginia, with a cargo of 135 slaves for New Orleans. Washington and his people sailed to the Bahamas. They were warmly welcomed there by fellow Africans who sailed out in small boats to surround a liberated Creole. The end of the 18th century had brought models of successful revolutions against tyranny to the Americas, but it also brought profound changes to slave communities. They were no longer dominated by people who had lived or been fighters in Africa, or who were steeped in its cultures. Slaves remained powerless, uneducated, and unarmed in the 19th century, while U.S. industrial might and military power soared. Slaveholders' surveillance over and brutality toward slaves rose. Pioneer families settled in the hills and backcountry that might once have been home to maroon colonies. New roads were built and trains reached into frontier regions. These opened a continent to whites and closed it to rebel slaves. The year after Nat Turner and his men were executed, the U.S. Army began to round up the five civilized nations at Bayonet Point for a forced march to the deserts of Oklahoma. These great Native American nations that once provided a refuge for fugitives in the heart of the South were gone. Even as African-American rebels conspired, they knew their enemies were gaining on them and their escape hatches were disappearing. The defeats of Prosser, Vesey, and Turner highlighted painful truths. Slaves realized that they were surrounded by Southerners who grew up with guns and were capable, in response to resistance, of unlimited racial brutality. Heavily armed militias stood prepared for the first alarm of revolt. Unarmed slaves saw they could be overwhelmed by disciplined, experienced troops with concentrated firepower. Any attempt at resistance would bring certain and immediate destruction, said slave Lunsford Lane, wise from seeing many uprisings fail. The men who fought with Prosser, Vesey, and Turner learned that powerful forces waited in distant ambush. Behind local militias stood the awesome military potential of the United States government. Its marching orders came from pro-slavery politicians. But the revolutionary upsurges of 1776, 1789, and 1791 fueled black hope and nerve. During Prosser's revolt, slaveholders warned that this new-fangled French revolutionary philosophy of liberty and equality meant trouble. They called slaves clearly the Jacobins of the country, the anarchists and the domestic enemy. Masters knew that faith in a black liberator, despite all the police and propaganda, was a strong force in slave huts. The Haitian Revolution, as Thomas Jefferson wrote, 
appears to have given considerable impulse to the minds of the slaves. Denmark Vesey originally timed his uprising to take place on the French Revolution's Bastille Day. Nat Turner originally chose the 4th of July. Prosser planned for his armies to carry a banner reading, Liberty or Death, the slogan of liberator Louverture into Richmond. Ties of history and blood linked Haiti and enslaved Americans. Prosser, Vesey, and Turner talked of Louverture's military genius and political success. Vesey, one of his men said, was in the habit of reading to me all the passages in the newspaper that related to San Domingo. For generations, Florida's African-American Maroons had traded with Haiti. A leader in Louisiana's huge 1811 rebellion was a free black from Haiti, Charles de Londe. African insurrections in Haiti, South and Central America, and in the United States sealed the doom of the African slave trade. Between 1807 and 1820, European governments banned the importation of Africans as a threat to white safety. In 1833, England ended bondage in its overseas colonies. Slave insurrections also created a new problem for slaveholders. In crushing rebels, they were forced to reveal the uncharitable and undemocratic character of a system committed to cruelty. With their whips, chains, and fire, they stood exposed as petty and reckless tyrants. To battle their human property, they were fully prepared to undermine both white constitutional rights and the will of the majority. To protect their investments, slaveholders demanded greater control over Congress and the presidency. They were no longer able to pose as kindly Christian civilizers. Increasingly, they appeared to fellow citizens as a violent force that scoffed at democratic traditions and threatened the peace. 